Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the RVC podcast, Veterinary Science on the Move. My name's Mark Cleesby and today I'm going to be talking with Professor Dirk Whirling of the RVC's Department of Pathology and Infectious Diseases. And we're going to be talking today about his research interests, which encompass invasion of cells by microorganisms and the way that uh, these microorganisms use various strategies to evade the innate immune system. Okay, so Dirk, what types of uh, infectious disease are you principally interested in? We're currently mainly working on infectious diseases which have a potential as being a zoonotic disease. For example, one of the diseases we're really interested in is um, tuberculosis. The main reason for this is because there's evidence that Mycobacterium bovis, which is causing tuberculosis in cattle, um, is also causing tuberculosis in humans, whereas Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the main cause of tuberculosis in humans, doesn't cause any disease in cattle. And in addition to these bacterial diseases, we are also investigating in some viral diseases like respiratory syncytial virus infection, which is a main cause of lower respiratory tract infection in newborns, independent of the species, Mm -hmm. as well as um, a cattle-specific disease, which is called bovine viral diarrhea virus, which, as the name says, causes diarrhea in cattle. Okay, so I guess um, with with the viruses, obviously, and with the mycobacteria, we're talking about intracellular uh, infections. I mean, how are these uh, agents actually getting inside the cells? Well, that is a really interesting question, and a lot of people are working on this, and for the last years, we really didn't know about this a great deal. What people did know was that if you add these pathogens on the outside of the cell, the cell forms vacuoles or the virus is attached to the surface, and then suddenly they appear inside the cell. But for the stimulation of these vacuoles or the virus is being able to attach to the cell surface, you must have specific receptors. Mm-hmm. And since 1997, we know that there's a set of receptors which are recognizing sugar components either on the cell wall of bacteria or on the cell wall of viruses. And it seems that the viruses as well as the bacteria are targeting these receptors directly to to get into cells. Right, okay. And what sort of immune responses are the... the uh species that you're dealing with are cattle predominantly, I guess, then mounting against these uh, invasions? Well, like with, I would say, nearly all pathogens, you sort of have two types of immune responses. You have a very fast um, immune response, which is based on your innate immune system, which means that whatever cell recognizes something foreign through these receptors you get a strong pro-inflammatory response, which is sort of a general switch on the immune system to say, hey, we have something in here which is not normal. It is so-called Mm non-self. Therefore, we need to do something about this. And then subsequently, this stimulation of the innate immune response stimulates your very specific adaptive immune response. And that's the one you want to have for, for example, vaccines. So it's a very specific very long-lasting response, which is in most cases based on antibodies, and that's the one which is actually protecting you at the end. Right, okay, so the innate immune response is, is the one which is um, is sort of always there and yes. it's fairly non-specific and yes. reacts to anything that looks a bit strange. Yes. Uh, and then obviously the adaptive immune response then targets a specific pathogen or specific yes, antigen. Absolutely. Yes, okay. 
So, I mean, how how did these sort of two different branches of the immune response actually evolve? I mean, uh, is the innate immune response sort of a uh, more evolutionarily ancient version? or? Well, it, it seems to be the case. Um, if you look back in the evolution and you go to fishes or sea urchins, they seem to have a lot more innate immune res- receptors, innate immune proteins, which I think if you would compare it would go down the line that they have a stronger pro-inflammatory response. Now, having said that, um, it seems that some of these factors, these sort of evolutionary old organisms are producing, are fulfilling partially functions of an adaptive immune response as well. I think the break point where the adaptive immune system actually starts to develop and in evolutionary terms starts is within the chicken system where you have suddenly... B cells being able to produce antibodies coming up. Right. So this is when you come into sort of the mammalian system or even the bird system, you suddenly have these very specific adaptive immune responses and everything before that seems to be more based on what we call innate immune response, but they still have functions which are similar to what we call the adaptive immune response. Okay, so they, they do have a degree of pathogen specificity then in their response. Anyway. Yeah, that's, yeah, that clearly seems to be the case, yeah. Uh-huh. So, I mean, uh, there's obviously uh, a number of different components to uh, to the uh, both arms of the response. I mean, yeah, you're particularly interested, I know, in uh, in a set of receptors called the toll-like receptors, yes, which are. are involved in the innate re- immune response. I yes. mean, uh, what exactly do, do they do? What, what's their role? Um, these toll-like receptors were discovered 10 years ago and they form part, I would say the main part really, of the ability of the innate immune cells to recognize something foreign. Now overall these toll-like receptors are part of a family of receptors called pattern recognition receptors. Mm -hmm. So they recognize a pattern which is associated with a pathogen. That's why they mainly recognize carbohydrate structures, sugar structures or fat lipid structures. And the toll-like receptors seem to be the arm of the innate immune response, which after binding of a pathogen to them, they induce a cell signal, whereas other receptors like the C-type lectin receptors are more involved in actually stimulating the uptake of phagocytosis of a given pathogen. Okay. So once a receptor has bound um it's pathogen. It signals into the cell, oh, we need to do something against this. This is not normal. This mm. is foreign. And the interesting thing, in my opinion, is that these sugar components these receptors recognize, they really do not occur in that composition in our cells. So there's a clear evolution, in my opinion, between the innate immune cell being able to recognize something foreign and the pathogen always trying to evade this initial recognition. And that's sometimes where things can go wrong and where problems occur, and that's one of the sites we're trying to, to work on. Okay, so, I mean, you've got these receptors then which are recognising a specific um, molecule which is, is typical of a type of um, uh, parasite yes. or um, virus, for yes. example, uh, and then triggering, obviously, a, a response, whether it be phagocytosis or a, a sort of signaling response yeah. inside the cell. And what's, what sort of cells are we talking about here? Are we talking about macrophages? Yeah. Or? I mean, the interesting thing is that at the beginning, people thought that um, these 
pattern recognition receptors like the toll-like receptors are mainly expressed on the classical innate immune cells like monocytes, macrophages. We know now that even cells of the adaptive immune response like T cells and B cells do, re do express these toll-like receptors, but they may have a different function there. Now, once a pathogen has bound to these toll-like receptors expressed on macrophages, what happens is that the macrophage starts engulfing these pathogens, starts or trying to digest them inside and stimulates a general activation signal to the immune system saying, there's a danger here, we need to do something about it. Mm. And depending then on whether the macrophage is able to, for example, digest the bacteria or cope with the virus, um, this immune response switches off quite fast again, and you may not get an adaptive immune response stimulated. However, if your infection persists for longer time, then this general activation signal recruits the cells of the adaptive immune system as well as other innate immune cells to the site of the infection. So there you have then suddenly on a local site a perfect scenario where you link the innate arm of the immune system with the adaptive arm of the immune system. Right, and this is all mediated through um, then sort of activation of signaling pathways and that results in production in, of cytokines. Exactly. In, yes. in, well, you can in general, I would say, you can call it immune mediators. So you have chemokines which are attracting other immune cells to the site of infection. Mm -hmm. You have cytokines which are either just generally stimulating anything um, surrounding the cell producing the cytokine or they can directly recruit a specific subsets of adaptive immune cell to the site of the infection. So that is the beauty in the system, actually, that we thought at the beginning, and with we, I mean the, the research community, that the innate immune arm doesn't play a specific role. So if you have an infection, you always get the same cells, you always get the same response. Mm -hmm. What we know now is that actually already on the level of the innate immune system, we have a tailored immune response depending on the pathogen invading us. You would not get necessarily the same immune response to the to a different microbe coming into your your body. Mm -hmm. So if you have a microbe A, you would get an immune response one. If you have a microbe B, you get a different immune response and so on. Right. So that's even before specific antibodies are being produced. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, what's known about these sorts of mechanisms in, in domestic animals, in cattle versus humans, which I guess, you know, most researchers are actually looking at? Yeah, that is, um, I guess it's a classical question, and I think the answer to this is we're catching up on that. Most of the knowledge we have regarding the innate immune system is actually coming from the murine system, because there you have more people working in this field, therefore you can generate reagents far faster. Mm. Now, that has a direct impact on what we know about the innate immune system in the human side. This is all fine. But within the last three years, we actually have caught up, at least on the ruminant side, and started identifying these receptors, characterizing their functions, and producing reagents to that. When you talk about other animals, like companion animals, cats and dogs, we know far less about the function of the innate immune response. And I guess part of this is that there's not a lot of money going into this kind of research in companion animals. You are able to finance maybe a PhD student, something like this, but you would not be able to fund a long-term project 
five years or even longer as mm. people can do in the human system when you investigate these things. Okay, so I mean, you've already referred to uh, the, the way that, uh, or, or indeed the, the fact that microbes can avoid this uh, or somehow avoid this uh, innate immune response. So I mean, uh, do we know much yet about the mechanisms whereby different microorganisms are doing this? Yeah, and it's really quite an interesting question. Um, and it seems to be the case that microbes have evolved mechanism by either not binding to these specific receptors, so they're really actively avoiding these receptors, or if they bind to these receptors, they don't signal the right way, meaning the receptor's not recognizing this as a foreign molecule. Or if they bind to these receptors and then are taken up within the cell, then they start blocking whatever signaling pathway is activated within the cell. So it seems really to be the case that on every level of activation you can think about, you will find a pathogen who has evolved a mechanism on how to block this level. Mm -hmm. So it's not only that the binding doesn't happen, or if the binding happens, then the signal isn't right, or if the signaling is happening, then maybe the cell responds in a certain way which favors the survival of the pathogen. And I think this is really the most important and very interesting question is, is there a co-evolution between pathogens and our immune system? Mm. So over the last million of years, have we evolved to recognize certain pathogens as really being foreign and maybe really the pathogenic ones for us, so the ones which are making us really ill and the ones which are not so important, you know, the immune system isn't really worried about this. And um, that's maybe where things can go wrong then and suddenly you have pathogens popping up in the world like Ebola virus mm -hmm. where maybe we haven't co-evolved with and that's why it's so dangerous for us. Right, because it's a surprise basically. Exactly, yes. exactly. So there's the sort of evolutionary race going Absolutely. on and a bit of sort of mutual adaptation yes. uh, but then something comes out yeah. of the blue. Because if you think about it from the side of the pathogen, um, for a pathogen it doesn't really make sense to kill its host so quick like Ebola mm. does for example for humans because then you burn out your host quite fast and therefore you won't survive. So what a pathogen needs to make sure is that it survives within the host, which means it needs to have a bit of an immune response so that it can affect, infect the other cells it needs to survive in. But on the other side, the damage shouldn't be so big that the host subsequently dies, or at least doesn't die so fast. Yes, I mean, I guess it's the the old uh, sort of story we were taught at school about how the ultimate parasite is, uh, is, is a, has a mutual yeah. relationship exactly. with the host. Yes. Yeah. So how do different species then respond to the, the, the sort of same sort of uh, infection going on? Well, that is a really, really hot topic at the moment. Um, as I said, at the beginning, researchers thought that it doesn't matter what species you're looking at, what organ you're looking at, what cell you're looking at. Whenever you have a specific receptor expressed on the cell, you would get the same immune response. What we know now from our own research in the meantime is that, well, it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, a classical example is that if you stimulate bovine cells with lipopolysaccharide, which is a main cell wall component of, for example, E. coli, mm -hmm. the cells do respond to the LPS, the lipopolysaccharide, with the same response as they do in the human system. They produce pro-inflammatory cytokines, and as a result of that, you would see in vivo the generation of fever. However, the response they have is far less compared to the human system. If you would take the same amount of lipopolysaccharide and put it in human cells, you would get a far stronger response. 
And we are currently trying to work out why this is the case. And it seems that species have evolved to recognize those pathogens which are really, really pathogenic for them, which makes them really ill. Mm. Now, if you think about the ruminant system or the cattle system, these animals have the big rumen, which is full of bacteria. Yes. So they can't really afford to mount a full-blown immune response every time a bit leaks out there mm -hmm. because they would be in constant fever processes, for example. Whereas if you think about our stomach, well, we all know what happens if we have a bit of E. coli bacteria or toxins from them leaking out, which is we get diarrhea, we feel ill, we have fever. So for us, having these bacteria in there it's fine as long as they're inside the gut. If they leak out of the gut, we have to do something about it. For the ruminants, they have so many bacteria in there, so if something leaks out there, they can't really afford to waste energy and mount an immune response every time. And I think this is really the crucial point, which goes back to the co-evolution of a pathogen and a host, but it also goes back to the question, are we actually working with the right pathogens in our current system, especially the pure cell culture system. I see, okay. And, uh, I mean, do you think that um, uh, variations in the, the sort of different molecules you're studying, the pattern recognition receptors, uh, will be associated with differences in disease susceptibility? So, for example, are there um, different breeds of cattle that have been identified that, that, that are more susceptible to, to um, particular infections because of variations? Yeah, well, we... The nice thing is that knowing the sequence, the gene sequence of one of these receptors, you can actually start looking in different breeds whether or not you have so-called single nucleotide polymorphisms in these genes, which are exchanges of um, nucleotides, or when you confer that, they can result in exchanges of amino acid in the in receptor sequence. Mm -hmm. And in collaboration with colleagues at the Roslin Institute, we have identified several of these SNPs, single nucleotide, single nucleotide polymorphism within genes, and it really seems to be the case that depending on the breed you're looking at, you find SNPs being present in one breed but not being present in another breed. Mm -hmm. And it is actually quite interesting. You may know that we have within the bovine population two sort of major arms. One is called the Bostorus breeds, which are the ones we have mainly in Europe, and then you have the Bos indicus breeds, which are mainly the ones which are in Saharan and Sub-Saharan countries. Yes, with the big humps. Exactly, yes. the ones with the big humps. And what we know is that these big hump cattle are quite resistant to parasite diseases like trypanosomes, like Babesia, whereas our Bostorus ones, the ones without the humps, do not seem to have the resistance to these diseases. Mm -hmm. And from what we know so far, and this is really early stage work, is there could be actually a link between specific nucleotide polymorphisms and disease resistant. And if that is the case, then there are potentially new ways on how to explore the innate immune arm to breed for disease resistance. Right. So, I mean, we're obviously talking then about very small changes in the protein. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. But these changes seem to be really, really important mm -hmm. because they can lead to conformational changes in the receptor. Is there a, much of a, a thought at the moment that we should be sort of breeding in a, a, a Bos indicus element into the uh, the Bos taurus cattle then for these purposes? If you look in African countries, this is what our classical 
geneticist colleagues have done in the last years, hundreds of years, really, or hundred years, um, that they realize that there are so-called genetic traits which make a breed more resistant to a disease and potentially also have an impact on certain production data of that specific breed. And I think what we are experiencing now is that we can actually put a pinpoint onto why this is happening. And I think this is really something, if you think about that, we have more and more bacteria which are multi-drug resistant mm. than breeding for a disease resistant based on what we know about the innate immune system is really a way forward to go. Yes, so I mean, uh, you know, as you mentioned, that there, there are a lot of drugs now which are less effective than they might have been uh, some time ago. And obviously, I guess breeding is, is one way of, of tackling that issue. And I guess the, the other question is, um, uh, with your increasing knowledge of um, sort of protein structures involved in pattern recognition, for example, and how that relates to disease susceptibility, is there a, uh, a good potential there for um, uh, either altering or developing new types of vaccine to then prevent these diseases? Yeah, I guess that is really the ultimate goal we are following up. And we have a really nice project currently running with a colleague of mine, Dr. Tracy Coffey at the Institute for Animal Health, where we're actually looking whether we can identify structures, sugar components, lipid components, which may act as new adjuvants to really stimulate the innate immune response we would like to have. And what I mean, what I mean with we would like to have is the one which is stimulating such an adaptive immune response, which leads then to a better protection and immunity of the vaccinated animal. So it is a bit of a both. We have antigens where we know they induce a strong adaptive immune response, but the adjuvants we are currently using are in a lot of cases based on research done in the mouse system. And our knowledge at the moment really points to the fact that these adjuvants may not be the best or may not be the most suitable other species. So what we can experience in the next years to come is that we actually have a species-specific research going on to ensure that we work with the right pathogen in the right species using the right adjuvants mm. and not necessarily identifying new vaccine targets, but increasing the immune response to the current vaccines by optimizing the adjuvant site. And that means that we actually can use what's given in ourselves, which is the innate immune system. So we don't need to have more drugs, but we can actually stimulate our innate immune system better in such a way that we can actually generate a really, really strong adaptive immune response. And the nice thing for us is that companies are interested in this um, because if you think about the cost for developing of new chemotherapies or antimicrobial drugs, that is really increasing mm -hmm. because we, this is a lot of work you need to put in there. And if you would then find a new drug which is really highly susceptible, uh, highly effective, organizations like the WHO or FAO may say, well, you can't use this drug as a common, commonly used drug. We need to keep this as our last offense. Right. So rather than investing a lot into these kind of areas, it, I guess it's cheaper for the pharma industry to invest money into new vaccines, new adjuvants, by targeting what's present in us anyway, the innate immune system. But this kind of research is only possible since the last 10 years where we have actually knowledge about this. Mm. Okay, well, I mean, that sounds like a very positive point on which to to finish there. That, that sounds very encouraging from the point of view of um, 
huge protection against some of these uh, very unpleasant diseases of uh, cattle and indeed uh, other species. Yeah, I think so as well. And I guess also what is interesting is that the more we know about the genetic background of animals and the more we know about how an innate immune cell works, the less likely it will be that you can transfer data from one species straight away to the other, which is a benefit for us. But on this other side, we are now in a position where we can do actually work in such a way that it may be really relevant for human diseases as well. Excellent. Dirk Whirling, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, particular broadcast. Um, it, I think, showed a particularly uh, interesting way of uh, integration of uh, basic science findings with clinical relevance. And I hope, again, you can join us next time for the next broadcast. In the meantime, if you have any comments or suggestions with regard to the podcast, you can contact us at podcast at rvc.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>